This is episode 248 with doctor of physical therapy, certified strength and running coach, and gait analysis expert, Ayn Bowie. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode is your masterclass on running form best practices with Dr. Ayn Bowie. We're exploring the do's and don'ts when it comes to changing your form, helpful cues to make these changes easier, and who might benefit from a running form analysis. If you're new to the Strength Running Podcast, this show features training conversations, coaching calls, and experts in the running space to elevate your thinking about the sport. I want you to make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. But Strength Running is not just a podcast. Don't miss our growing YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos on effective strategies to stay healthy, my favorite form cues, training principles that never go out of style, and more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world improve with our award-winning blog, our free email courses on strength training, nutrition, injury prevention, and improving your mindset, plus all of Strength Running's training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. Learn more about those at strengthrunning.com coaching. This episode is brought to you by Inside Tracker, one of my favorite companies that's investing heavily in the running community right now. They test your blood for dozens of biomarkers so you know if there's any red flags with your physiology that might be holding back your running. Then they give you science-backed recommendations to improve anything that might be outside of your personal optimal ranges. Get 25% off any of their blood tests with code STRENGTHRUNNING at insidetracker.com slash STRENGTHRUNNING. Now that code doesn't have a space, it's STRENGTHRUNNING, all one word, and you can see all the details at insidetracker.com slash STRENGTHRUNNING. We're also supported by the Spartan Race Series. Ever since I tried my first obstacle course race 10 years ago, I have loved these events. They're athletic, they're demanding, and they require you to be more than just a runner. They require you to be a well-rounded athlete, something I wholeheartedly endorse here on this podcast. Go to spartan.com to find a local race near you, and if you're in Colorado, I hope to see you on June 12th at the Colorado Springs Spartan Race. That's spartan.com to find a short or long-distance obstacle course race near you. Our guest today is a physical therapist, a certified strength coach, and a USATF certified running coach. Dr. Ayn Bowie competed in cross-country and track at UC San Diego and completed her doctor of physical therapy at Columbia University in New York City. She participated in unique electives, including advanced orthopedics, management of the running athlete, and women's health. She held leadership roles at Columbia's Run Lab Clinic, performing running gait evaluations and providing individualized exercise programs for high-level runners. And today on the show, we're exploring the topic of running technique, its best practices, her thoughts on the forward lean, foot strike, and cadence, and how we can correct common errors with our form. And if you want Strength Running's list of form cues, my personal favorites to help you refine your technique, 
Go to strengthrunning.com slash cues. Now, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ayn Bui. So Ayn, we're going to do a deep dive on one of your favorite topics today, running form and gait analysis. So I hope you're excited. I'm super excited. This is my favorite topic to talk about. Ah, I'd love it. Now, I want to start first with just some of your background with running. How'd you get involved with the sport? Um, So I started running at a young age. Um, I didn't specialize in running until I got to high school. And then I competed um, in track and field and cross country at UC San Diego. Unfortunately, my running career was really unimpressive. I was injured often. Um, I wouldn't say any of my injuries back then were, you know, debilitating, but I had many of the more common running injuries like IT band syndrome, hip pain, um, knee pain. And so those injuries kind of manifested itself and I was never really able to build anything on top of my fitness because I wasn't able to train consistently. And so when I graduated um, from undergrad, I kind of felt like there was this untapped potential that I never reached. And so then I moved on to like the marathon. I was like, okay, it would be cool if I qualified for Boston. And so I did. And then after that, I started my PT degree at Columbia. So I moved out to New York City. And I was like, okay, like I'm going to move on to something else. Like PT excites me. And it's okay if I don't compete anymore. And then I joined Central Park Track Club where I met all of these amazing women who were qualifying for the Olympic trials in their 40s. And so that really kind of motivated me to just start getting back into running. Do you think that your experience as a runner with all those injuries played a part in you wanting to become a physical therapist? Because it sounds like you were almost scratching your own itch a little bit. A hundred percent. And I think because I didn't have like this magical college running experience, Like I tried to search for other ways, other things that excite me as much as running would. And every time I tried to get away from running, it was like, all right, here's this great running community that kind of just reels you back in. Yeah, I can't get away from the running community either, which is probably a little hard with the job I've created for myself. But uh, we're a fun bunch. We're 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 good people to hang out with. <laughs> I agree. And then you know now I'm so fortunate to have a career being a physical therapist, and it just meshes with my passion so well. Yeah, for sure. And and you're not just a physical therapist. You're a running coach. You have your uh, certified strength and conditioning uh, specialist certification as well. So. You you not only are a PT, but it's almost like you're a PT that specializes in runners um, just because of your background and because of the fact that you're also a running coach. And I know that you're just hanging out with, you know, runners all the time through different running clubs. It's a dream come true, honestly. And, you know, one thing that I've realized, too, is with traditional physical therapy, there's some, you know, running injuries is multifactorial right? Like it's not just, if somebody just went to physical therapy, they can still get injured because they'll go out and they'll go and run 10 miles spontaneously or they'll run too hard. And so honestly, a lot of running injuries is due to training error. So, you know, being a running coach and being able to guide somebody like, what should you do? What shouldn't you do out there? And how do you return to running properly after an injury is super valuable? Yeah, for sure. And and I think too, the, the benefit that you get from being the PT and the running coach, 
you can sort of attack these problems from both sides, right? You can treat the runner once they're injured, but as you know, the running coach, you put that hat on and then you can help prevent those injuries from occurring in the first place through sound training. Because I completely agree with you. I think the number one reason why runners get hurt is because of training errors. You know, we run too much, too soon, too fast. And as my college coach would say, that's a good recipe for getting hurt. It is. Yeah. And like, you know, a lot of my patients, like if they don't have a running coach and like they're serious about getting better, I, I will, if we're the right fit, I will coach them. If not, I will send them to somebody else who can. I think it's just that extra set of eyes on your training, just to kind of give you that extra nudge to run the workout or maybe not run the workout or just make those wiser decisions about your training that I think is really helpful. Absolutely. We're going to spend most of today talking about one of your favorite topics, running form and gait analysis. And I want to start with the best practices with running form, and then we can move into the gait analysis side of things. Do you have a philosophy or a certain guiding set of principles when it comes to form? And I ask because there are just so many different schools of thought about how runners should be running and I was wondering what your high-level thoughts are on best practices when it comes to running technique. So my best practice is actually quite simple. Um, it's really, let's find ways to optimize your running form. And I, I use that word optimize very carefully because I think there's this idealistic way that people think you should be running, right? Like we see Elliot Kipchoge and we're like, oh, like we really want to look like that. But most people realize you can't, right? Or maybe you can, you can tweak certain things, but you might not look exactly like that. And so there's not really one running form that fits an individual. So the most important thing is that you really evaluate the individual and you pick certain things to optimize depending on what the goal of the athlete is. Um, the other principle that I work around is that everyone is built differently. Um, so, you know, you could... And this happens to me too. Like, you know, I'm, I'm in the race, I'm running the marathon. And I was like, oh my God, I can't help but like look at people's running form. And I have to shut that PT brain off and just be like, okay, just focus on your race. <laughs> but here's the thing, like we can't judge somebody's running form without evaluating how they're structurally built on the treatment table. And that's the biggest thing. So we're all built structurally different and you have to just work around what the athlete has already got. Um, and so for me, you know, I, I focus on optimizing parts of running form that I believe will give runners the most bang for their buck. So most people have a, a set of injuries that they keep experiencing in the past. So we can target that, look at the running form and see how it correlates to the running injury. Um, some people want to optimize their performance and we can tweak things here and there about that as well but also respecting that, you know, they might structurally be built differently. I think this idea of certain injuries might have some relationship to your individual technique is really interesting. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. Maybe we could just pick a couple injuries that, that you know a lot about and sort of drill down into some of the form problems that might be there that are causing some of these injuries. And because this is my podcast, I want to talk about the injury that I get injured with most often, and that's IT band syndrome. What are some common form errors or things that could be optimized for people who come in who typically have IT band syndrome? 
That's a really great question. Um, IT band syndrome is one of the more gray areas in the research. Um, there's, you know, there's not really a direct correlation between IT band syndrome and running form. But what we do know and what we do hypothesize is that running with a very narrow base of support increases the amount of pelvic drop that you have. Um, so that's excessive pelvic movement side to side. And then also increased knee valgus down at the knee. Knee valgus is when you see the knee collapse inward towards the midline of the body. And so one of the, one of the things that you can change about that is having someone run with a slightly wider base of support. So what you'll see is some people run on like a tight rope, especially trail runners, because they do a lot of single track running. So what you could do is, for example, you can have somebody running on the track and be like, why don't you straddle the white lines of the track? And so over time, you retrain the brain to know where the foot lands in regards to the body. Um, and then the other thing that you can look for is, you know, making sure that the person doesn't overstride. Overstriding and keeping a wider foot stance. This mm -hmm. sounds familiar to me. And I'm curious if having that wider stance, is that something that you need to get used to or build strength to really allow your body to have that wider stance? Uh, I just wonder if if it's sort of like a physiological limitation and it might be hard to actually, you know, just start running with a wider stance. Is there something else going on that would make it easier? Oh, Jason, you're asking some really good questions today. Um, the answer is both. So for example, sometimes you try to change certain variables in running form, but the person just can't do it because they're not strong enough and they're just not used to that motor pattern. So obviously like, you know, PT is not the only solution. Like I encourage people to like, for example, IT band syndrome, um, doing a lot of glute activation exercises, hip strength, and then also rolling out the adductors. So the muscles on the medial side of the thigh, if those muscles are really tight, it can also cause a narrow stance when you're running. I see, great. Now I have some things to focus on in my own yeah. running and hopefully our listeners do too. Now let's move on to another common injury, Achilles tendinopathy. This is uh, one that I've had several times myself and I know that many of the runners that I work with, unfortunately, will get this one. It's very common among distance runners. What are some form issues that might cause Achilles tendinopathy? That's a really great question too. And it's one of the more common running injuries that I see in runners um, one of the most common ones is being a forefoot striker. So when you land heavily on your forefoot, you are just loading the gastrox, the soleus, and the Achilles tendon more than somebody who, for example, lands on their heels. Um, the other thing that you can see is what we call an early heel rise. So for example, um, when all of your weight is on one leg, so we call that the mid-stance phase of running, or what a lot of people are calling these days as the down step. So when all of your weight is on one leg and you start to push through, you're pushing off, what you'll see is the heel comes off of the ground before your, your thigh is actually behind you. So we call that an early heel rise. And it's one of those signs where somebody is really overusing their calves and they just don't know how to drive from their hips. Does that make sense? Did I, did I paint a good visual for you? 
Yeah, I think so. I think it's the the runner who's more actively using their calf and Achilles to propel themselves forward as opposed to, you know, just more generally speaking, balancing, you know, their stride with all of the muscles, you know, that they have available. Yeah. So my recommendation for that person is strengthen the glutes, work with a PT to retrain your body, how to use your glutes, especially when you're running. Um, and then if you are overstriding, that can also increase um, some of the impact going into the Achilles and the calf. That's great. This is so helpful, just sort of linking form errors with some of these really common injuries. Um, now, what about plantar fasciitis? There's a common injury along the bottom of the foot where that plantar fascia can either become inflamed or slightly strained. Uh, what's going on there with our form? Unfortunately, over um, overstriding can also be correlated with plantar fasciitis. So, you know, I think when people ask me, like, what's the one, if there's like one thing you can change about running form, what would it be? It would be to make sure that you're landing with your foot close underneath your center of mass. Yeah. And I like that because what we're doing is we're sort of isolating a couple of these best practices. You know, a lot of the times you can fix 95% of your form errors by just focusing on a couple big picture things. And it sounds like where your foot is landing in relation to the rest of your body is a big one. And I know that overstriding is very common. It, you know, I think a lot of runners want a long stride, right? It is, you know, we watch these pros like Elliot Kipchoge, like you mentioned, and he's got this graceful, incredibly long stride, but he doesn't get it from reaching out in front of his body. It's really his, his uh, trail leg flying out behind him and really getting all the distance through that. And so I think if we can isolate some more of these best practices, then uh, that'll be really helpful for us. Um, we've talked about landing underneath your center of body. I think that's a big one. It's going to prevent overstriding. It's going to prevent really aggressive heel striking. And you know, when I mentioned heel striking, that is also something that a lot of runners think is completely taboo. You know, a midfoot strike is ideal and preferred. Uh, what are your thoughts on foot strike? Is there is there a preferred foot strike? Is it variable? How should we think about this? Oh, that's a really great question. And interestingly, like, and up until today, like, I still that's one of the most common questions that I get from my patients. And what I'll start by saying that you know. Dr. Larson's group published a research paper in 2011 in the Journal of Sports Science. And this was interesting because they looked at foot strike in distance runners during a competitive race. And what he concluded from that was that foot strike had nothing to do with race times. He looked at 936 runners in a marathon. And what he found was 89% were heel strikers. Um, and then he looked at 236 other marathoners and he found that a large majority of people who started out as a forefoot striker at the 10K mark actually switched to become a heel striker by the end of the race. That's fascinating. It, it is really fascinating, right? Because it, it actually, you know, a forefoot strike may be more optimal when you're running the shorter distance. But when it comes to the marathon, it actually becomes more efficient to become a heel striker. And I'll, I'll be careful with the term heel striker because it, again, it depends. So if you are a heel striker, but in conjunction with also being an overstrider, that increases your risk of injury, especially the common running injuries that we just talked about, like IT band syndrome, Achilles tendonitis, plantar fasciitis, 
all the bad things can be associated with that. Versus if you are a heel striker and you can land close underneath your center of mass, then you actually minimize that that angle or that that rate of vertical loading that we actually talk about. Um, so interestingly, when you, for example, if you had somebody running on a force plate, right, and you looked at the vertical ground reaction force. So basically, every time that you make contact with the ground, there's another force that comes up from the ground that needs to get absorbed through the joints of the body. So what we see with a heel striker is we see two peaks. So we see one peak that's very steep, and then it goes down a little bit, and then we see another peak. And then versus if you are a midfoot or a forefoot striker, you actually kind of just see like one smooth peak. So kind of based off of this data, people have associated, you know, being a heel striker as a jarring motion, but you can really soften it if you can land underneath your center of mass. I've heard this be called a proprioceptive heel strike in the past, uh, particularly with analysis of Meb Keflesky's running form. And he's someone that I frequently bring up as a heel striker who also has happened to win the Boston Marathon and be one of the best distance runners in the country. And, you know, it can't really be that bad if the research is showing that there's not actually a a negative drawback to having a heel strike. Again, it all depends on the type of heel strike, right? And the fact that we can see it out in the real world, people winning races, having a pronounced heel strike. Um, and, and I'm, I'm really glad that you differentiated between different types of heel strikes, because if you're landing underneath your hips, you probably are not over, you're definitely not overstriding. You're probably not having that really aggressive heel smashing type of heel strike that can just be really jarring on the body. And like you said, increase your injury risk. What's really interesting actually is if you are a heel striker and overstriding, what we've also seen is that is correlated to patellofemoral pain syndrome. So, you know, that which is one of the most common running injuries in females. Um, the other thing that we see is it's associated with anterior, anterior lower leg pain. So, for example, if, if somebody came to me and said that's all they've been dealing with for the past year and I do a gait assessment and I see that, you know, they're just landing with a heavy heel strike and their knee is almost completely straight, I'm like, that's a really stiff landing and we need to work on it to soften it up. And that individual might actually benefit from being a little bit more midfoot. I like that. I like how it's sort of this individual approach and you've sort of linked the injury to the type of running form. Um, and I, I won't, we're going to talk a little bit more about this when we get into gait analysis, but I think uh, looking for those red flags is going to be a big part of, of any good gait analysis. Uh, I do want to talk about some other best practices when it comes to form. We've touched on uh, overstriding and how to limit that by trying to land underneath your body. Uh, We've talked about how just doing that will likely eliminate that super aggressive type of heel strike. And we probably shouldn't really worry about what our the type of heel strike that we have as long as we're landing underneath our body. Another big aspect of form that I get questions about probably every week is cadence. And cadence is something that, you know, (laughs) there was a little bit of uh, a certain number being popularized by Jack Daniels, 180 steps a minute. And now every runner think that that's, you know, gospel. What do you think about cadence? That's so funny you say that because 
there's no research to support that 180 equals like optimal performance or decreased risk of injury, right? Like, again, it all depends. Um, I think a better way to think about cadence and cadence is step per, steps per minute is why do we need higher cadence, right? Like, is it because somebody is overstriding? If so, they're taking really large steps. So their cadence might be lower. So if you take large steps, then, you know, it makes sense why your cadence is like 150 or 160. And if that's the case, then we can increase the cadence. Um, the interesting thing what I've seen too is that doesn't, that isn't always the case. I have seen very fast runners running at like 190 steps per minute and still overstriding. So that becomes a habit issue. Um, what I would recommend is, you know, 170 to 190 is, is a good number. 160 is a little bit low. And isn't cadence dependent upon your speed? Because if you watch someone race an 800 or a mile, their cadence is going to be through the roof. So when we're talking about these numbers, is it at all pace ranges? Is it for one specific pace range? How do we think about that aspect of things? I would say it depends. Um, obviously, if you are running, you know, a 430 mile, you're going to have a very high cadence because you you need that turnover. Um, if you're running on a trail, your cadence might be a little bit slower. But I would say the main thing to focus on is can you maintain your running form at that speed? So just maintaining your form at a given speed with a cadence that is likely over 170 steps a minute. Do you, do you think there's ever an opportunity for a runner to be running less than a certain cadence number? You know, maybe for example, if this runner is just getting started, maybe they're running 1130 or 12 minute miles. Is, is that an, a scenario where a slower cadence might be more appropriate? Absolutely. And those are all important things to take into consideration when you're working with an athlete, right? It's like, what is the average pace that they're running at? So, you know, if you're running... 11 minute pace, it's going to be really hard to, to sustain 180 steps per minute. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think the interesting thing about the 180 steps a minute is that Jack Daniels, the coach found out that most of these elite runners were running this cadence, not when they were running the race, but sort of during the jogging beforehand, uh, that he noticed on the track. So number one, this is a number taken from elite runners. So take that into consideration and also, it was during an easy pace. And I'm sure when they were running their race, uh, that cadence was dramatically increased. Now, the other aspect of running form that I, I think is fascinating is the forward lean. I think we've all learned that a forward lean is something beneficial that runners should have. Uh, but then I've seen runners out there on the street, you know, just leaning way too far forward and leaning from the hips. How do you think about this forward lean? And is it something that runners should you know, actively try to do when they're out there running? I would say, yes, you should focus on a forward trunk lean, but there's a time and a place to do it. And it depends on where in that running gait cycle that it happens. That's most critical. So for example, earlier, we talked about the mid stance phase of running or the down step. Um, this is actually where you want to have eight to 10 degrees of a forward trunk lean. Um, in this phase of running, so all of your weight, well, really two and a half times your body weight is on one leg. You're using your body's shock absorbers. You're storing that potential energy and you are getting ready to release that energy during push-off. Um, so here's a picture that I like to paint 
to most of my patients, right? When you have an eight to 10 degrees of a trunk lean in this position, we call that a hip hinge because that position actually gives you access to utilize your glute muscles to push off in that next phase of running. So if you were to do a squat and you were completely upright, you would have a quad dominant technique. Really, you would just be loading your quads and that would be your primary shock absorber. If you had a slight trunk lean and you, you know, you lean forward, you, you reach your butt back, we call that a hip dominant squat. And you can practice both. And what you'll notice is that you're, you're using your glutes more when you have that hip hinge. And that's going to prepare you for push off. So, you know, what I tell people is each phase of running sets you up for that next phase. So if you're somebody who has a lot of knee pain, let's work on making you a little bit more hip dominant and let's work on that eight to 10 degrees of a trunk lean during mid stance phase of running. How do you avoid the forward lean from the hips when you're out there running and you're like, okay, I'm trying to get this forward lean in. It should really be like sort of you know, from the hips rather than sort of, you know, it should be your whole body, not just leaning straight forward from the waist. How do you, how do you know that you're having this problem if you have it and how do you correct it? That's a really good differentiation and something that takes time to explain to runners that, you know, the hip hinge doesn't mean you're just bending from the, from the waist. Um, really it's about leaning from the ankles and shifting your weight forward, like shifting all of that momentum forward with a very slight bend in the hips. Um, one of, so people respond really well to running cues. So like, for example, you can tell someone like, think about running nose over toes. So when you're running, you should think about having your nose, you know, over your feet. Um, the other thing that you can practice is running uphill, Running uphill, you can really practice, you know, pushing off from the glutes, um, sled pushes in the gym. If, if your gym has a sled, you can throw some weight on it, do some sled pushes. Um, another exercise that I like to give people is if you had, you know, one of those pull-up assist bands and you put it around your waist, and the first thing that you have someone do is practice leaning into that band from the ankles. Oh, that's interesting. You'll actually be able to feel the position by doing that exercise. Yeah, it's it's really proprioceptive. You're retraining the brain to know where where most of your weight is in space. I will echo the hill running aspect of things. So from a training perspective, I think I think one of the best ways to improve your running form is just to make sure your training is really good. Make sure you're doing the form drills, the strides, you know, high mileage can even help. It sort of forces you to get more efficient as long as you're doing it in a healthy way. And hill workouts in particular, not only are they great for building strength, for building power, you know, it's just so hard to run with sloppy form up a hill, especially if you're running up that hill with any kind of effort. So if you're doing a formal hill workout, as opposed to just running a hilly route somewhere with a lot of ups and downs, which I think has some benefit as well, the formal hill workouts are just fantastic. They put you in a good position. You know, you, you have to sort of engage your muscles against gravity uh, on that incline. And I think that's really helpful for not just the, the physical benefits, you know, you're getting stronger, but the 
the mental benefits as well. You're sort of the proprioceptive side of things, retraining your brain to get in those good positions. It's almost like weightlifting, you know, getting in a different, slightly different range of motion than if you were just running easy on flat ground. So the hill running piece of things I think is, is really fantastic. Now, I think, you know, to sum up this, this part of the conversation, I think all runners want better form. It's, it's one of their top goals. And, you know, we've all seen the pro runners out there running races and they just look so good doing it. And we all want some of that for ourselves. If we wanted to start working on good form in our training and start this process of optimization, like you said earlier, and I love that word because I agree, I think perfect form is a myth. What can our listeners start doing today in their next run to get better form? And maybe I'll give you a a little bit of a nod here. You mentioned cues. Is that a helpful thing to focus on? It is, but you need to know what the problem is first. And I think for most people, myself included, the first time I ever saw myself run, I was like, is that really how I look? Like, (laughs) you know, like in your head, sometimes like you think you look like Shalane Flanagan. And then when you see yourself, you're like, oh, that's not really the case. And so what I tell people is, knowledge is power, right? Like you don't have to go into a PT clinic or a biomechanics lab to like see yourself run. If you're just running on the street, you know, take a look at a window and like see your reflection. Um, if you're, if you're running with a friend, Hey, just have your friend take a quick video of you. It's not going to be accurate of your running form, but it'll be good enough for you to get an idea of where you should start improving your running form. Do you think folks should count their cadence, uh, check for overstriding. Some of those best practices we thought about, uh, t- discussed earlier, is that a good place to start with some of those, you know, big principles of good form? Absolutely. Um, overstriding is easier to identify if, if you get feedback. I find that it's hard for people to figure that one out on themselves because sometimes, you know, you really need to you really need to record the person and and slow down that camera and really just see, you know, how the extent of their overstriding. Um, The other thing you can look at is your cadence. That's super easy to figure out. Um, One, you can either count. I'm not a good counter. So I look at my Garmin and then you can, or even Strava has it, right? You can easily figure out your steps per minute from there. If it's, if it's 150 and you're running at like eight minute pace, yeah, you're, you're probably running at a very low cadence and that can be increased. Yeah. That seems to me a red flag. Anytime your cadence is 150, let's get that a little higher. But you know what? I see it, Jason, all the time. That is, uh, that's more bounding than running at that point. (laughs) It is. So yeah, I hope that's helpful advice for any listeners out there. Um, you know, figure out what your cadence is and, you know, get a video of yourself running or try to see a reflection of yourself from time to time. Let's talk a little bit more about gait analysis. So this is what would happen if you go into a PT clinic or another location that might offer a formal gait analysis. Can you walk us through the general process? If if someone has never had one of these done before, what should they expect? So it varies depending on where you go. And I've had very fortunate experiences, all of which were different. Um, And what I try to do is, you know, take things from those experiences that I like, and then try to curate it my own way of like, as a runner, how would I want this information like given to me? So 
what I actually recommend, and a lot of people go to like a one-time gait assessment where all of the information is thrown at them, right? Like, you know, in some places they'll put LED markers on you and, and record you and then look at all the joint angles. Um, but what I find often too is it's too much information for a runner in one session. And really, you can only change one variable at a time. So for me, what I prefer to do is really break up that gait assessment into like once a month PT sessions for like three months, because I want you to get really good at one thing and then come back when you're ready. Let's work on the next variable and then let's work on the next one. Um, in terms of like, you know, what to expect when you go into a PT clinic, usually it'll start with a lengthy history. I spend a lot of time just ask, trying to ask the right questions. I want to figure out the runner as a person. What are your habits? What's your training like? Um, do you do any strength exercises? What kind of injuries have you dealt with in the past? What are your goals? And then from there, I like to take them through a movement assessment. So, you know, starting with the spine, seeing how much range of motion they have, looking at the hips, looking at the ankles, looking at the big toe, just overall range of motion. Um, I'll take them through muscle strength tests. And then from there, we'll do the run analysis portion. I'm curious about the whole Q&A portion of this assessment, because um, I'm curious what training habits or uh, certain histories within the sport contribute to dysfunctions in running form. You know, are there, are there certain red flags that, you know, you'll ask a question about what kind of training they're doing, uh, that, that automatically sort of, you know, you make a little note of that on your notepad and, and then that influences the other part of your assessment. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting is what, and I've had runners come in like before an injury and after an injury, and sometimes their running form changes in just six weeks because maybe they were compensating for something else. Um, and so like, for example, if someone told me that they've been dealing with um, a bunion for years and they just have big toe pain, one of the, I'll make a mental note of that because what, what I would expect to see on the running portion is they don't like to use their big toe. Like they avoid it when they run. Yeah, that makes sense. C commonly avoiding the things that are causing you pain. Right. Or like if they tell me they sit all day for work, right? Like if you sit for eight hours a day, then I'm going to expect you're going to have really poor hip extension, or in other words, a really hard time driving your hip behind you because your hip flexors are just so tight from sitting. Yeah, I think that's a common problem for so many of us these days because so many of us have types of office jobs or we're working behind a computer for most of the day. Um, what are, what are some preventative measures that those of us who sit for a big part of the day can do so that when we go running, we're not impacted by tight hip flexors or sleepy glutes or whatever it might be. That's a really great question. Um, and I, I have firsthand experience with this because when I first started PT school, I wasn't used to sitting for eight hours a day and I would do all of my interval training um, in the evening around like six or 7 PM. So it felt like going from zero to 60. And that was actually where I got my first hip injury was from sitting so much in lecture. Um, one of the best practices that you can do throughout the day is just get up and move every 30 minutes to an hour. Um, you know, sitting all day, isn't good for you. Standing all day at a standing desk, isn't good for you. The body likes to move. So as long as you can just you know, get up, move around, move your body. That's the best thing that you can do. 
I'm sitting at my standing desk right now, actually. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. There's also, you know, a couple of really great exercises that I love for desk warriors. For example, um, open books, cat cows, just to really open up the thoracic spine. What was the first exercise you mentioned? Open books. Can you describe that one? I don't think I've ever heard of that one. Oh, okay. So you're lying on your side um, with both arms in front of you. So your hands are together. And then you lift the top arm and up and over. So you're trying to bring that top shoulder down to the floor. I see. Okay. So you're twisting the spine. Just make sure that you're, you're turning your head with that top shoulder. And that's really good if we're hunched over our computer and that's going to really impact our just our, our spinal flexibility, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you're, what I tell every runner is you are more than just moving legs. Like running is ears and below. So, you know, your spine is designed to bend forward, backwards, side bend, rotate, all those things. But the problem is that we stay in one position all day. Yeah. Now, do you recommend a gait analysis for any runner or is it just the runner who might be having a lot of injury problems? Who's the ideal candidate for going into a gait analysis lab? Everyone. Everyone who wants to get better. I love it. You know, and I think one thing that I'm realizing too is um, especially, so for me, I live in Marin, um, which is, you know, tons of active older runners. And my, my practice is in Oakland. But what I realize is, you know, for many people, yes, they're competitive now, but they want to still be competing like late into their 40s, their 50s, their 60s. And so they're looking for ways to just decrease their risk of injury. And sometimes that's, you know, what a gait analysis is best for. Yeah, I think the longevity piece is really important because, you know, for most of us, we have our performance related goals. But underneath all that is this is this just drive to run for a long time. And, you know, I, I might not be running 90 miles a week anymore like I used to, but I'm still running almost every day. And and I just almost feel this compulsion to run almost every day. It is just baked into my DNA. And I definitely want to keep doing it into my 50s and 60s. And I think a big piece of that is understanding your personal limitations. And a gait analysis can be great for that. And also, not just, you know, what your form errors or limitations might be, but the strength or mobility limitations that could be contributing to those form errors. And then once you know sort of the the mechanisms, the underlying reasons why your form is a certain way, that gives you a whole great blueprint for then how to structure your training to get stronger, to get more mobile, to improve your form. And that's going to make you into a runner who's going to be running for decades and decades. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that I also remind people too is like form is important. Doing your running drills is really important, right? It's, um, you know, I think with traditional PT, we're trained to give specific exercises for a specific impairment that we see. But what I always tell people is, what about your running drills? You know, like any runner who's, you know, middle school, high school, college, we always, always do our running drills. And for whatever reason, as we get older, we get lazy. And running drills is actually one of the best ways to fix your running form because you're really, you know, recruiting those specific muscle groups. You're reinforcing good running form, you know, 
For example, B skips are one of my favorites to for anyone who overstrides because the whole idea is to just get that foot underneath you. Yeah, that's another great cue as well is just put your foot down underneath you. And if you're thinking that as you're running, that's a helpful cue to prevent some overstriding. Uh, I think the other great aspect about form drills, and I'm, I'm surprised we haven't touched on this a little bit, is just the range of motion aspect of things. Yes, you're recruiting the muscles that you need to be recruiting. Yeah, you're sort of, you know, uh, uh, getting into those, you know, good positions, even exaggerated positions. But the range of motion is so wide, and it's so much wider than you would normally do, even if you were sprinting and you're having that very long, wide open stride. And then that really helps with mobility. And if you have any limitations, then form drills are really going to expose those limitations. So I think they can be a helpful diagnostic tool as well. Absolutely. Jason, I have a question for you. Oh boy, let's do it. Okay. So I was listening to uh, the Drive podcast with Peter Atia, and there is an episode with Ryan Hall. And he says that when when you run, you should be stomping the ground. <laughs> and uh, did you listen to that podcast? I haven't listened to that podcast, <laughs> but I do have some thoughts on that. Yeah. So it's it's like a three-hour podcast. And basically what he says is like, you need to think about stomping the ground, getting that foot underneath you. But by putting that much force into the ground, you're going to get more power as you push off. That was the first time that I've heard anyone say stomp on the ground because we're always used to thinking like soft landing. So I'm interested to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, I think this is a nuanced discussion. I think Born to Run in 2010 taught me that I should land very quietly on the ground, that we should have soft footsteps, that you should be able to sneak up on a dog. And if you can do that, then you're running with great, you know, very graceful running form. But the problem is, you know, if you want to run really fast, you do have to exert a lot of force against the ground. And if you've ever been next to the track during a 100 meter sprint, the sound that it makes right after the gun goes off is one of my favorite sounds in the world. It is just that rapid fire footstep sound of eight to 10 people on the track just running as fast as they can. And what they are doing is exactly what Ryan Hall was describing. They are stomping the ground as hard as they can because part of that force is going to be stored isometrically. They're going to get that great uh, ground reaction force. And then part of that is going to be used as propulsive force to move forward. So on the one hand, yes, you kind of need to strike the ground very hard when you're trying to run very, very fast. Should you be doing that when you're out for a recovery run five days after the marathon? Absolutely not. That is a good time to, to run as softly and quietly as possible. But I think if you're trying to run a speed workout on the track or you're racing a middle distance event, that can be a helpful cue to reinforce Number one, cadence, you know, stomp on the track, boom, it has to be quick, it has to be powerful. And then the strength side of things where it's a good idea for you to hit the ground pretty hard because you're going to be storing more of that energy within your muscles during that, uh, the, oh, you had a great name for it. It was like the drop stance, the, oh, the downstep, <laughs> downstep. There we go. In that downstep, when your f weight is fully down on your leg and you're storing some of that two and a half times your body weight of force, you know, that gets released as you push off the ground. 
So it can be part of a helpful strategy to run really fast. And I think the best runners do this without even thinking about it. You know, they're just trying to run fast. And part of having a very quick stride is putting a lot of force into your stride because you have to hit the ground, boom, your leg has to come up really quickly. So I think it's, you know, a a fine idea. It's probably a little bit more suited to the more competitive runner who's trying to run very fast. For the runner who's really struggling with a lot of injuries, you know, maybe we shouldn't be reinforcing this cue because they might take it to an extreme or focus on it a little bit too much and it could contribute to their injuries. So I can kind of see how we need to be a little bit careful with this. I think it's an important component of performance, a little bit more suited to more advanced runners, but it's a part of running fast for sure. I really love your answer with that. And, you know, one thing that I think is interesting too is there is, you know, if you read all the systematic reviews out there about running form and injuries, the research is pretty inconclusive, right? Because injuries are multifactorial. So we can't really say that, you know, because everyone is also so different and oftentimes it's due to training errors. But one thing that the research does agree on is that strength training basically increases your running economy, increases perform- performance, decreases your risk of injury. And quite honestly, too, like when a new runner starts to strength train, I can see the difference in their running form. So like some people, you know, you try to get them to increase their cadence, but they just don't have that turnover strength. They just can't. And when you start put, throwing in plyometrics into their strength program, it becomes easier. I've been banging this drum for quite a while. I think the value of strength training is incredible. And just hearing you describe it, it just sounds like the secret elixir that is going to make every (laughs) runner into the best version of themselves, right? Increases your performance, your running economy, decreases injury risk. What is not to love? It'll Um, do more for you than a pair of alpha flies. I promise you that. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. And a good strength program might actually be a little less expensive than those crazy shoes. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. This was uh, uh, helpful for me to get a better handle on the nuances of running form. Is there anything I might have missed about technique that you'd like to add before we wrap up today? I mean, I would say I would just summarize, you know, I think we touched on all the bullet points, but making sh- the big things is making sure that, you know, you're not overstriding. Um, look at pelvic stability. So how much single leg stability you have. And if you do see a lot of excessive pelvic drop, excessive pelvic movement, then I would say hammer the hip strength and really focus on single leg exercises in front of a mirror. So people don't know that their hip is dropping down to one side. And so when they do like single leg RDLs in front of a mirror or lunges, they can, they get that feedback and it's really helpful. Um, And then also just keeping in mind that, you know, Running gait is just one piece of that puzzle of staying injury-free. There's so many other pieces of that puzzle, such as nutrition, strength training, um, training, uh, you know, good training program, and, you know, making sure that you're taking care of yourself. Yeah, those are all really important. And I'm glad that you put on your strength coach and running coach hat to talk about the training and the strength training side of things. Um, one more question before we wrap. How is your marathon recovery going? You just ran the Eugene Marathon a couple of days ago. I actually ran the half marathon. Thank you. The half marathon. <laughs> oh, I was a little off. <laughs> How are you feeling? 
I actually, I feel really good. Um, I recover very well from half marathons. Um, I was able to run Mount Tam this morning. So if anyone hasn't done Mount Tam yet, it is no matter how easy you do it, you are just suffering the whole way up. So, you know, talking about hill training, like that's it. So I, I try to add as much variety as I can during my off season. Um, and that's going to be shorter races, hill training, trails, strength training. Love it. That's some good variety right there, especially coming off some longer distance training for the half. That sounds great. Exactly. Well, Ayn, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for your expertise. And uh, if folks want to follow along with your work, because I know you put out some great stuff online, where can they find you? Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram. It's runresiliently.dpt. Um, you can also follow, you can book an appointment with me through my website, Um, and then you can also come to my community workshops if you're living or out in Oakland. Well, if I'm in Oakland, I'm definitely going to come be coming to your next workshop if I'm ever traveling. They're pretty fun. So you should definitely come. I've seen pictures. They do look a lot of fun for all of the running geeks out there like us. (laughs) (laughs) And that's our show today, my friends. If you're getting value from this show, please consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also support us by supporting our supporters. A lot of support going on here. (laughs) These are companies that I trust, that I use myself, and that contribute to the running community. Inside Tracker is a company that I've been working with for years, and I hope to continue for years to come. They're one of the most reputable personal blood testing companies out there, and their goal is to help you analyze your body's biomarkers. Things like stress hormones, like cortisol, testosterone, vitamin D, sex hormones, mineral levels, and more. And using your personal data, they create optimal ranges for each of these biomarkers just for you. So if you find that you're outside of your unique optimal zones, they have an ultra-personalized nutrition platform that gives you science-backed suggestions for moving into the preferred zone. This helps you avoid any health problems, optimize your training, improve your performances and recovery, and reduce your injury risk. I have personally gotten three of their ultimate tests myself, and the process is easy, it's simple, and it's very eye-opening. They also have at-home testing, which only takes about 15 minutes and is super convenient. Go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning to see how you can get 25% off site-wide on any personalized blood test that they offer. Of all the purchases you can make in your running, this one can actually improve your performances. It's a wonderful opportunity, and you can see all those details at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. We're also supported by the Spartan Race Series. You've probably heard of Spartan Races, but I'm sure you don't know that they offer such a wide variety of types of races, from short to long-distance obstacle course races, and even ultra-distances, to trail races, stadium races, and even city races in major areas. They also have kids' races, and I'm hoping to bring my kids to the Spartan Race in Colorado Springs on June 12th. If you're local to Colorado, it'd be great to meet. Go to spartan.com and find an event near you. And what I love about more challenging races like obstacle course races is that they diagnose your weaknesses. They're a diagnostic tool to help you pinpoint what area of your fitness is lacking. Do you have a general aerobic deficiency? Do you struggle with upper body strength? Can you handle the stop and start nature of OCRs? Do you have the mobility to perform the obstacles? Signing up for a race that challenges you in a different way, like a Spartan race, 
is a helpful way of finding out more about yourself as an athlete. Go to Spartan.com to see all of their race options, find one near you, and hopefully I can see some of you at the June Spartan race here in Colorado. Thanks for listening, sharing, subscribing, telling your friends, and supporting the Strength Running Podcast. If there's ever anything I can do to help you in your running, email me anytime at support at strengthrunning.com. Until next time. 